You're listening to the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. We hope that this podcast is a helpful resource in your daily walk with Christ. Now, here's today's sermon. Remain standing if you would and turn to Matthew chapter 18. If, uh, if you're going to junior church, you can be dismissed. That acapella singing, uh, the parts, the harmonies, you'd make, you'd make the Church of Christ people proud on that. That was good. Really good. Uh, Matthew chapter 18. We are in sermon number 70 uh, from the book of Matthew. But I think, I was figuring this morning, I think we're about t- almost two-thirds of the way through. Maybe at the end of that, uh, chapter 18, we'll be two-thirds of the way through. Uh, the book, but I'm loving it. I love what I'm learning uh, going through this, learning more about my, my Savior, learning more about um, how we know that He is the authentic Messiah. And uh, I'm, I'm having a great time going through it. So I hope you are too. Hope you're learning something and growing. Matthew chapter 18, verse number 1 says, At the same time came the disciples unto Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Let's pray real quick, and then we'll get into the message here this morning, and uh, we'll talk about the greatness of humility. I'm going to have my hands out. This is a picture of my heart being open to what God has for me today. Father, thank you uh, this morning as you uh, as we learn about humility, as we learn about that in Sunday school this morning. We know that you uh, you were not surprised by the parallel there. Uh, and Lord, I just pray that as we as we study your word, that we would be uh, we would learn about what true humility is and the need for true humility in our lives and in our churches. And we pray that you'll speak to us. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. Uh, as, we, as we think about what is the greatest, who is the greatest in the kingdom, I was thinking about this, that most people are driven by a desire to be the greatest, or at least to be great. So my question then is, what does it mean to be great? We, we kind of, that's one of those things we just take for granted. Well, I know what it means to be great. If I asked you who the greatest basketball player was in history, uh, there would be differing opinions. Some of you uh, would be, when I was younger, there's no way I would have ever said Michael Jordan is the greatest basketball player because he played for the Chicago Bulls, and I'm a Pistons fan. But the older I've gotten, the more I've been able to understand that he is the greatest, and don't you dare say LeBron James. Um, so... Uh, you know, but there are differing opinions. That greatest baseball player, you might say, well, you're talking about pitchers, or you're talking about hitters, or you're talking about fielders. Uh, probably right now, Otani is probably the best baseball player in the league, but um, he's on the IR now, so if you wanted to watch him, too bad. Uh, he's done for the year. Uh, football, who's the greatest football player? Well, you're talking receiver, running back, quarterback. And so you would go through all these things, but a lot of it would, de- would depend on who you root for, right? The greatest point guard in history is Isaiah Thomas, okay? Because he was my favorite player growing up. That's who I root for. Well, if we talked about who is the greatest president of the United States, okay, I want you to tell me who you... No, don't tell me that. Because it probably depends on what team you root for, right? And so we would say, well, I think this guy was the greatest president. I think this guy was. And maybe you're going to go all the way back to George Washington. Maybe you're going to go somewhere in the middle with... uh, Abraham Lincoln, maybe you might think Calvin Coolidge. How many of you think Calvin Coolidge is the greatest? No? Okay. He did cut the budget in half, which I do like that about him, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, Or you might pick someone more recent, and we're not going to go there. I do know who isn't the greatest president. Uh, There's a bunch of those. So, 
Now, once again, all of these, would, we would have differing opinions. And those opinions would be based on what you, if, you're, if we're asking what your opinion is, be based on what you think um, is important. What is a benefit to you? What is a benefit, in your opinion, to society? What is your benefit, in your opinion, what is the benefit to the nation? What do you value? That would determine who the greatest is, who's the greatest president. But what does it mean then to be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In any kingdom, the greatest would be the king. Now, if he's a smart king, he would say it's the queen, right? But who's the greatest in any kingdom? It's the king. And so instead of wondering about how can we exalt the king, the disciples wondered how they could exalt themselves. We know that the king, if what Jesus should have said is you're looking at him and that would have ended it, right? Who's the greatest in the kingdom? I am. That's what, he, that's what he could have said. But Jesus had more to teach them than my little snarky response. So here's what I think is happening. I think they're asking the question, which one of us do you value the most? Which one of us is the most important to you? You know, we've got this kingdom and we might say, well, uh, God values some of us more than others. Is that true? Well, the answer is no, because sometimes... We confuse value with roles. We confuse blessing with love. God loves all of us. God values all of us. However, not all of us have the same role and not all of us have the same blessings. Our blessings sometimes are determined by our obedience. But sometimes they're not. If you've been with us on Sunday evenings as we go through the patriarchs, you see that we saw a family last week, um, Isaac, Rebecca, and their two sons, Jacob and Esau. None of them were good role models, right? None of them were godly people in that chapter. But we see a growing faith. Tonight we'll see a growing faith in Jacob. Now, maybe the, maybe the disciples' question was about who had the greater prominence. And so, obviously, they were his disciples, so they felt like they were the greatest 12. So which one of us, 12, is going to be the greatest? But let me ask you a question. Judas was one of the 12. Do you think he was greater than Jesus' friend Lazarus? No. Because they had a role, again, don't confuse blessings with value. Don't confuse roles with value. Everything about this question in verse 1 was selfish and self-promoting. How can I be greater? Now, I know that in Matthew chapter 20, the mother of James and John came to Jesus asking for her sons. Does one of them sit on the right hand, one to sit on the left hand? I'm sure they had an internal argument after that about who gets the right hand. Right? But they, the mom comes and said, hey, I want one of, my, one of my sons on your right, one of you on your left. But this is a short-sighted question. I can't help think that she was imagining Jesus conquering the Roman Empire, sitting on his throne, and physically there on earth, one of her sons sitting on his right hand, one of her sons sitting on his left hand. But I also notice here in verse 1, this is at the same time, came the disciples unto Jesus saying, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Not who will be, but who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? Now the kingdom of heaven is God's people on this earth at a particular time. We are the kingdom. I, I realize that. But their desire was to be great here on this earth. Their desire was how can we or who is the greatest one here on this earth right now? 
Jesus is going to answer their question. And I really believe that Jesus, when he answers this question, it is not the answer that any of his disciples expected. None of them thought this is how he would answer. Look at verse 2. And Jesus called a little child unto him and set him in the midst of, him, of them and said, Verily I say unto you, except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus starts here by telling them, you need to become as little ones. You need to become as little children. No one here thought, you know, I wonder if becoming like a child is the way to greatness in the kingdom. Nobody expected this answer. Now, the word greatest can also mean eldest. So Jesus brings a little child, a young child, into the midst in order to answer the question. And so the disciples, they want to know, uh, which one's the greatest? Jesus says, you must be like these insignificant children. Children in our culture are viewed differently than they were in that culture. In that culture, children were insignificant. Uh, the oldest child might have had a little bit more significance but for the oldest son, but for the most part, children were insignificant. In our culture, children are supposed to be allowed to do whatever they want. Uh, so we've, we've taken it to the opposite extreme, that children... Uh, Children should are significant, however, they ought to also be parented. And so he says this, that except you be converted. Now, we talk about conversion. I say, when were you converted? When, that means when were you saved? When did you become a Christian? The word converted means to turn around. And so there was a change of mind that was necessary. So Jesus is saying, he said, listen, you're asking about who can become the greatest, but you need to have a change of mind. Your mind is thinking about the wrong things. Your, your mind is valuing the wrong things. You need to have a conversion, a change of mind. And so he says, you must become like a child. I think it's important that we understand Jesus was not commending the foolishness of these children. He was not commending their, in, their innocence. He was not even commending their immaturity. He was commending their humility. That a child is humble when they are little. You must become like a child. And so he endorses the humility or the lowliness of a child as the key to entering the kingdom of heaven. Verse 3 deals with the entrance to the kingdom. A person must humble themselves to be saved. If you want to make it to heaven, first of all, it's not going to be by how hard you strive or how much you work for it or how many good things you do. If you are going to make it to heaven, you must understand that no matter how good you are, how many good things you do, it is never going to be of any value to get you to heaven. The only way to get to heaven is to be humble. To confess that there's nothing that you can do to earn salvation. That you can't be good enough to endear yourself to God. But we must totally rely on the grace and the forgiveness of God to be saved. So if you want to be saved, you must humble yourself. And stop trying to get there. I've, I've used the illustration before. I like the illustration. Maybe you don't. Maybe you're tired of it. But I like the illustration that if I'm trying to climb a rope to heaven and we all have a rope, we're trying to climb to heaven, we could say, I've got further up the rope than you got, but none of us made any significant impact on getting up that rope. And the only way to get there is to let go of the rope. To realize that you cannot climb a rope to get to heaven. So in verse 3, he deals with the entrance into heaven. And in verse 4, he teaches them how to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, both of them are the same, aren't they? He says, then let's become as a little child. Verse 4, if you humble yourself as a little child. Both of them seem like they're the same answers. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he shall lift you up. 
Okay? You don't have to build yourself up. Most of us tear others down because we're actually trying to build ourselves up. We want to feel better about ourselves. And that person looks better than me, so if I can tear them down, I'll feel better about myself. Jesus says, or James says, Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he shall lift you up. Luke 14, 11. For whosoever exalteth himself shall be abased. That means he'll be brought low. But in he that humbleth himself, he that makes himself low, will become exalted. Listen, the road to greatness, the road to greatness is humility. Boy, I want to be great in the kingdom of heaven. Well, if your goal is to be great in the kingdom of heaven, you're probably not showing humility. You humble yourself and allow God to lift you up. I read a sermon by a guy named uh, Mike Perry, and he wrote this. The child in the arms of Jesus was a graphic illustration of loving trust, immediate obedience, and the coming in coming to the arms of Christ and in seeking only the position of being loved. I don't need to be great in the kingdom. I just want my Savior to be pleased. I don't need to have some position in the kingdom. I don't deserve any position. I don't deserve to get to the kingdom. I just know that I'm loved by my Savior. And that's where, my, that's where I'm making my eternity in. That Jesus loves me. He died for me. And I trust Him to save me. And so, it is not humble acts. Listen, it is not, the, it is not you doing humble things. It is not you saying, you know what? I want to be great in the kingdom, so I'm going to clean the toilets. I want to be great in the kingdom, so I'm going to do this mean, uh, mean job, this low job. I'm going to do it because I want to be great. No, you see, it's not humble acts that are the key to greatness. But it is humility. And humility is not about how others see you, but it is about how you see yourself. Are, how do you see yourself? And, and so, sometimes we go, wow, I'm, I'm really an insecure person. That's not humility either. Insecurity means that you think it's about you, and so it's really a form of pride. Oh man, I'm just not good enough. I, I don't, I'm not very smart. Everybody else is smarter. Everybody else is prettier than me. Everybody else is more handsome than me. And so I'm just not good enough. You see, it's not about you. And so our pride says, I want it to be about me, and I'm upset that I don't have what they have. So in verses, so in verses 3 and 4, he tells us, here's the key to the kingdom in verse 3. You won't enter unless you are converted. You become as a little child. Verse 4, the greatest in the kingdom of heaven are those that are humble. Verse 5, and whoso shall receive such a little, little child in my name receiveth me. But whosoever shall offend one of these little ones which believe in me, it were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and that he were drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe unto the world because of offenses, for it must needs be that offenses come. But woe to that man by whom the offense cometh. Wherefore... Well, we'll come back to verse 8. Let me, let me cover verse seven, 5 through 7 here. John, he's talking here about offending little ones. Now, John Gill says of this little child that it is like unto, like unto it for modesty and humility. One that is, as that, free from pride, ambition, and envy. Kids just want to have fun. They don't have ambition. They don't have pride. They don't have... This envy of being the greatest. We're talking about little ones. And so he says there in verse 5, And whoso receiveth such a little one, a child in my name, 
receiveth me. Jesus is as a little one here. He's humble. Uh, he is not self-serving. He always spoke the truth about himself. He said, well, yeah, but Jesus claimed to be God because he spoke the truth about himself. And so there was no pride there. It was simply, this is who he is. Children are defenseless against the bigger, stronger adults that they come in contact with. And so Jesus takes his child, sets him on his lap, and uses him as a picture. Now, infants cannot believe. Okay? So an infant cannot be saved. So clearly, Jesus is talking about those who are little ones spiritually. He's talking about those that are not strong. They're not wise, but they're humble believers in him. Now, in verses 2 through 5, he says there, he, he uses the, in each verse, he uses the phrase either little children or little child. That the word there is paadion. Now, that word is always referring to a small a child, or a, it's often translated for a, a young lady, it can be translated damsel. It is someone who is young. It is used metaphorically. It is used metaphorically here as an immature Christian. But then in verse 6, he uses the term little ones. In verse 10, he uses the term little ones. And in that, that is a completely different word. The word there is micros, micro. It just means small. And so the, the word paian means a, a small child. The word micros means something small. So you notice that there's a change of words here. Jesus is referring to that little child on his lap, but then when he talks about offending someone, he changes it and he uses just the word micros, the small, something small. So Jesus here, and I've, we have all probably heard people use verses 6 and 7 as a referring to, taken out of context and referring to someone who harms a child. That someone who harms a child should be have a millstone cast around their neck and cast, and they should be cast into the deepest sea. And listen, I don't disagree with them that that's an appropriate punishment for hurting and abusing a child. But what Jesus is saying here is not, he's not referring to small children. He's referring to immature baby Christians. It is important that we understand that God is not pleased uh, with someone who causes a immature or, or a baby Christian to stumble. You see, we sin, and that's unacceptable to God. Uh, we may even lead someone else to sin, and that's unacceptable to God. But to cause a humble new believer to sin... Whether that is a child or whether that is an adult, Jesus said it's better for that person than they be hanged, that they have a millstone hanged about their neck and they're cast into the deep sea, that, that they are drowned. And so the Lord here, he's not suggesting that when someone offends a weak believer, that we ought to cast them into the sea. He's not advocating that we drown people because they did something that they shouldn't do. But he is showing the severity of the sin of being an offense. This is important. And clearly he's not talking about something unintentional. He's not talking about someone who didn't know better, someone who didn't realize what was going to happen. But he's speaking to the intentional or, listen, or the careless actions that knowingly could cause another weaker brother, weaker believer to stumble into sin. These offenses 
could come from Christians who are using their liberty as an occasion to the flesh. I was uh, helping a, a church the other day with, the, with their video system and um, the pastor, uh, I, I joked, I, my, Lindsay called me, or actually called me while I was there, and I said, I said, well, I said, his name's uh, Phil, and I said, we went to high school together. And I go, well, actually, and he was standing there, I said, actually, I was in elementary school when he was in high school, so we didn't really go to high school together. Um, but but uh, Phil is a friend of mine, and I was helping them with their sound system, or their video system. And uh, we were talking about, they're, they're changing, they're redoing their constitution um, and uh, their um, church covenant. And we were talking about some of the wording in there. We were talking about how there are things that we can be 100% against in our culture. We can say, I think there is zero wisdom to doing these things. But we can't say Scripture is 100% against it. But what we do is we go, oh, Scripture doesn't say it. That gives me the license to do it. That's not what it's about. It's about now you have the opportunity to honor God with your choice of whether or not you're going to do that. And so I think it's in Galatians, Paul said, not to use uh, your liberty as an occasion to the flesh. In other words, you are given Christian liberty, but it's not so you can satisfy your own fleshly desires. And so you're given liberty. Uh, what do you do with that liberty? And so because people will take, Christians will take their liberty and say, well, even pastors said the Bible doesn't actually say this is technically wrong. Well, now I have the freedom to do whatever I want. And you can't tell me I'm wrong. If your liberty is being used to satisfy your flesh, you're wrong. It's that simple. doesn't matter uh, whether somebody stumbles or not. He says, Paul said, not to use your liberty as an occasion for the flesh. So, what do you use your liberty for? To exalt Christ. To glorify Him. So, Jesus here, he cautions, he says, listen to verse 7, he cautions the world. Woe unto the world because of offenses. Listen, we need to understand offenses are going to happen. He says that it must needs that offenses come. But then he gives the warning also to those who become the stumbler, the one who causes them to stumble. There are going to be stumbling blocks. That's the way this fallen world works. You're going to stumble. I'm going to stumble. People are going to stumble. The new believer is going to stumble. The warning is not to you that somebody else might stumble. The warning is to you that you might stumble and to you that you better not be the one who causes the other one to stumble. Woe to them. Why? Because God does not tolerate the offense causer. He does not tolerate that. That's not okay with him. Then he comes to verse 8. Wherefore, if thy hand or thy foot offend thee, cut them off and cast them from thee. It is better for thee to enter into the into life halt or maimed rather than having two hands or two feet to be cast into everlasting fire. And if thy hand, if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. It is better for thee to enter into life with one eye rather than having two eyes and be cast into hellfire. We need to protect ourselves. So, remember last week we talked about the word offense, what it means. It means to cause someone to stumble. And I said these next couple of passages are going to deal with offending. We talked here, and we're going to come back to it because because he does, we're going to talk, we talk about offending the little ones, offending the weaker brothers. But then here, for two verses, he says, you need to not offend yourself. You know that there's many stories about animals that had a limb caught in a trap, and that animal will chew off that limb in order to survive from that trap. You might remember the story back in 2003... Um, Aaron Ralston, 
He was the age of 27 at the time. He was hiking in a canyon when a boulder dislodged and pinned his arm against the canyon wall. After five days of attempting to free himself, he had a multi-tool, a cheap multi-tool in his kit, and he began to experiment with tourniquets. This is over the course of five days. He began to experiment with tourniquets. He began cutting himself, trying to figure out how he's going to free himself from this. Finally, after five days, he put a tourniquet on his arm, and he sawed through his arm. He was delirious. He was hallucinating. And so he did the only thing left that he could do to save his own self. He figured it was going to be better to live life with only one hand than to be a two-handed corpse. He had to make a choice. Which one am I going to do? Jesus here is not advocating for self-harm. That would also go contrary to his word. He's not telling us to cut parts of our body off. But he's showing us the extremes that we must go to, the extremes that are necessary to prevent our own selves from being offended by our own selves. The problem with taking this literally is this, that it is a, uh, if, you're, if you're sitting with your right hand and you cut your right hand off, you're going you're to start sitting with your left hand. And if you cut both hands off, then you're going to begin to sit with your feet. And you're going to take your feet and are going to take you places. And you're going to cut a foot off and you're still going to be able to hop. And you're going to get there. And then you cut both of them off, you're going to have a wheelchair and you're going to get there. Because here's the thing. As long as you have breath in you, you have a potential for sin. As long as you are alive, you are going to have the temptation to sin. Your brain can still sin with a thought at any time. Warren Rearsby writes this, How do we get victory? By purifying the desires of the heart, appetite leads to action. And disciplining the actions of the body. Obviously, our Lord is not talking about literal surgery, for this would not solve the problem in the heart. The eye and the hand are usually the two culprits when it comes to sexual sins, so they must be disciplined. Jesus said, deal immediately and decisively with sin. Don't taper off, cut off. Spiritual surgery is more important than physical surgery. Physical surgery, the, the literal cutting off of body parts is not going to fix the problem. It is not going to keep us free from sin. But Jesus is teaching us that we need to take sin seriously. And the battle of sin seriously. So what do we do? Well, instead of plucking out your eyes, get rid of the internet. Get rid of your TV. Say, Pastor, are you one of those people that thinks that we should have sinful to have a TV in your home? I hope not. Because i got a 90-incher in my living room. That's the biggest TV that I've ever seen. I got it for free. Uh, it didn't work when I pulled it out of a place. No, it really didn't work, and then I was able to fix it, and I have a 90-inch TV. So I'm not saying it's wrong. But I'm saying if that TV, whether it's 90 inches or whether it's 9 inches, if that TV causes you to sin, get rid of your TV. Or unsubscribe to the services that you have. Or, what about your internet? Should you get rid of the internet? Good luck going anywhere and not having internet. You can do it. But, as I've mentioned before, we have, we have software. There is software. We pay $100 a year, I think, for it. Something like that. $97 a year for software to put on devices to keep stuff off of there that should be on there. Whatever you need to do, do it. Even if it seems extreme. You go to work, people say, well, look this up on your phone. I don't have the internet. Oh, what kind of person are you? Are you crazy? Now, you know, I'd rather enter into the kingdom uh, with, without the internet 
than be in hell, in hellfire, without, uh, with the, without, with the internet, right? Now, is he saying that oh, if you sin, you're going to, if you sin and, and you fail with your eyes or with your hands or with your feet, if you fail, that you're going to go to hell? No, once saved, always saved. I believe that. I'll believe that till I die, because the Bible teaches it. But he's showing us the severity of sin. Turn your eyes from wicked things. I taught a lesson years ago that people talked about. Uh, people would mention it back to me for years. Bounce your eyes. You see something, just move your eyes. It is a habit you can develop in your life. Now, uh, sin begins in the heart. Charles Spurgeon wrote this. Holiness is to be our first object. Everything else must take second place. Right eyes and right hands are no longer right if they lead us wrong. Wisdom there from a preacher from 200 years ago, almost 200 years ago. Now, verse 10. Take heed that you despise not one of these little ones, for I say unto you that in heaven their angels do always behold the face of my Father which is in heaven. For the Son of Man has come to save that which was lost. How think ye? If a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, doth he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seek that which is gone astray? And if so be that he find it, verily I say unto you, he rejoiceth more of that sheep than the ninety nine which went not astray. Even so, it is not the will of your Father which is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. We need to protect the little ones. To despise, he says there, uh, he says there in uh, verse number, where did I lose it? Where is it? See, when you study from one Bible and then you preach from a different Bible, you forget where things are. Uh, if thine eye offend thee, pluck it out. I'm, not, I'm, I'm sorry. Oh, verse 10. Thank you. Thank you for all your help, people. You all are going to 10, but I'm not going to say it out loud. Verse 10. Take heed that ye despise not one of these little ones. Now, the, the word despise can mean what we think it means, and that is to think evil or to think bad against someone. Uh, but it can also mean to think nothing of that person. So your careless casting of your stumbling blocks, your disregard for their needs, catches the attention of the Father in heaven. We know that Satan, uh, as, as, a, as an angel, right? He's a fallen angel, but Satan, we're, we're, we've talked, we talked about this Wednesday night with Lot. He has access to the Father. He comes into heaven. But the other angels, he's the accuser. He comes into accused. But here we see other angels going to God on behalf of the little ones. Now, do, do we each have a guardian angel? You, people have tried to build that doctrine on this verse, that we each have a guardian angel. It's possible. It's also possible that we have a bunch of angels watching out for us. And so, we, do we have, it doesn't really matter. But I do know this, that little ones, okay, not just children, but young believers, baby believers have an advocate. Now, I'm not talking about the advocate on sin. I'm talking about they go to the Father on our behalf and they say, hey, we're watching and this is what's happening and this is what this person has done to this person. Then he gives the parable here of the lost sheep. Now, this is similar to the parable that Jesus told in Luke 15. It's a different account. In that passage, Jesus is telling about his own actions toward the one. Jesus said, I left the 99. I, that's what I do. I go to the 99. Or I go to the one, I leave the 99, and I go to the one. Now, I've heard people say, um, and, and some of you know how I feel about this, uh, there's a song called Reckless Love, and, and I don't like that song because God is not reckless. 
Okay, and they'll say, well, what it really means, listen, God didn't leave the 99 to get destroyed by the wolf, right? He never leaves us nor forsakes us. We're going to see that in tonight's passage. So he doesn't leave us in that way, but he, he goes out and he says, listen, the 99, if they're mature, they're going to be okay, but I'm going to go find the other one. So in the passage, he, in that passage, Jesus was telling us about his own actions. But the context here is instruction for us to act as he would act. Love the little one. Love the immature believer. Jesus said this. Go and find that little one. Go rescue them from their condition. You see, as if, you are, if you consider yourself, and I don't consider myself a mature believer. I consider myself... More mature than some and not as mature as others. I, I, I hope I'm just a growing Christian. Okay? But if you have some maturity spiritually more than others, what do you do? Well, here's what, here's what the immature Christian who thinks they're mature does. If they think they're mature enough to make their decisions, their, uh, their decisions about their liberty to please themselves. And what do they do? They cast a stumbling block in front of others. But if you're truly mature as a Christian, you're truly maturing, you're more mature than others. It's not a bragging thing, it's just a time thing. And you're more mature than them. Stop casting blocks in front of them and go find them. Go help them. Well, it's not my problem. I'm not their pastor. I'm not their parent. I'm not their whatever. It's not my problem. It's, oh, that's probably for the Sunday school teacher or for the deacons to do. No. Go find them. Rescue them. People are living their lives stumbling after stumbling after stumbling and they need somebody to come and say, hey, watch out for that block. Let me help you with this walk. God is not willing that any should perish. It is not his desire. But specifically here, it is not his will that a little one be turned away by the offense of a believer. And he says, woe unto you who offend it's a warning. As a, as a Christian, you are either one of these little ones. And that's okay. Listen, you say, all right, what do we do? What do we do with this passage? I was listening to a podcast, and it was a Catholic and a Mormon, and they were talking about being Christians, and they were disagreeing on some things, but basically we're all Christians, right? That's what they did. Uh, and when they were talking, one of them said, well, I just wish that the preacher... Uh, would give us the application for what they're teaching. All right, I try to do that, doing my best. So let me let me tell you what I think here. How do we apply this? First of all, it's okay to be a baby Christian. It's just not okay to stay a baby Christian. Okay, say so I'm a new believer, and I don't. All this is new to me. I'm not really sure. That's okay. That's okay. Jesus is discipling his disciples in this chapter. Our spiritual maturity. If you're if you're a if you're a a seasoned Christian, your spiritual maturity will be evident in the way you treat other Christians. If you look at others and you go, man, I'm telling you what, I am just flying through this Christian life and I don't have time to wait for these people that are dragging me down. These people, they're not living right. These people, they're falling down constantly. I can't, I just can't, I don't have the patience for them anymore. Your spiritual maturity is displayed and how you treat other Christians. So what do you do? Go get them and bring them along. Go get them and, and drag them with you. 
Are you using your liberty as an occasion of the flesh? Well, that is sin. And it's a sin that might cause others to sin. So whether it's, whatever it is that's causing you to sin or is a stumbling block to others, cut it off. You don't need to wean yourself off of it slowly. You just need to cut it off. This is something that is affecting me. It's making my, my, my life, I'm stumbling through my Christian life. Whatever it is that's causing that, cut it off. Here's the thing. Most of us will hear the sermon and we'll hear what Jesus said and we'll go on and we'll live just like we always have, stumbling over our sin. Because we're not serious about living a godly life. We're not serious about growing in our walk. If you've never trusted Jesus as your Savior and turned away from your sins, if you've never turned away from your idea of what good is, your idea of how good you are, then you need to humble yourself today as a child and accept the undeserved gift of Jesus and His finished work on the cross. Mike is going to come and lead us in a, in a closing hymn. If you're here today and you've never trusted Him, please don't leave here today without knowing that you are right with your Maker. Because Judgment Day is coming. If you know you're saved, what are you doing to bring others along? There's an old comedy bit by uh, oh, Bob Newhart. Some of you might remember this. Might, maybe you've seen this. He's playing a, a, a psychologist or something. And a lady comes into his office and she said, I'm, I'm struggling with this and I, I just can't stop. And, and he says, okay, I want you, I'm going to give you two words. And, and she says, okay, do you want me to write these down? He says, no, I, I think you can handle it. I want you to give you, how many of you have seen this? Anybody? Oh, you've got to look it up. All right, a couple of you. Uh, and, and he says, okay, listen, here's what I'm going to tell you what to do. Ready? Stop it. <laughs> and, and then she goes on and he goes, oh, let me... I got two words. Right? You might, maybe you want to write it down. You know, stop it. And I realize that dealing with uh, psychological issues and sin is not that simple, right? It's not just I'm going to stop. But you need to cut it off. Do whatever you got to do. Jesus is saying, be serious about this. Do whatever you got to do to get that sin out of your life. And I encourage you to talk to someone who you can trust to help you through it. And. Thank you for joining us today on the First Baptist Church of Hazel Park audio podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about First Baptist Church, visit us online at fbchazelpark.com.